Well, it's a, it's a joy to be given Terry's voice a rest this morning. Uh, if you don't normally come here, Terry is our, Terry Martins is our usual speaker up the front here, and we're tracking through the book of Luke, but this morning we're going to jump onto the left-hand side of the Bible and look at probably what is a very well-worn page in your Bible, Psalm 23. I mean, it's a psalm that we're all familiar with, isn't it? If I was to come to your house, I'd probably see a, a fridge magnet on your fridge with a picture of a sheep on it or something like that. It's, it, there's no denying that this psalm is perhaps the most popular portion of Scripture in the entire Bible. I mean, you could go through your entire life without ever actually opening up a Bible and still the words of this psalm would sound familiar. And I think one of the reasons why it's become so popularised today is because this psalm really touches on the nerve of what it means to be human. I mean, you know, whether or not you choose to realise it, I believe that all people hunger and thirst for this personal, intimate relationship with God. We all want the green pastures. We all want the still waters. But here's the issue. Not all of us want the Lord as our shepherd to lead us there. Paul says in Romans 1 that we suppress the reality of God in our unrighteousness. And Psalm 23 this morning is a psalm about life for the Christian with God at the helm. Now, being Psalm 23... Putting it in context before we get into it, being Psalm 23 means that it comes right after Psalm 22 and right before Psalm 24. So by its very position in the canon of the Psalms, we can uh, notice a very unmistakable chronology here that's very important to, to not miss. You see, Psalm 22, we see this picture of, of Jesus, the good shepherd, laying down his life for his sheep on the cross. It's a prophetic psalm about Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus, the good shepherd. John 10.11 says the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Psalm 23 that we're going to look at today, this pictures the great shepherd caring for his sheep. Hebrews 13.20 says the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. And Psalm 24 pictures the chief shepherd who will one day come back for his sheep. 1 Peter 5.4 says when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So this is our context here. And, and this, this, this trilogy of Psalms, Psalm 22, 3 and 4, it gives us this great big wide-angle panoramic HD 1080 HP picture of who Jesus is. From his first coming on the cross, right, until, right through the church age, all the way up until his second coming at the millennial reign. Listen to this. Concerning Psalm 22 and Psalm 23, this is what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said. The position of this psalm is worthy of notice. It follows the 22nd psalm, which is peculiarly the psalm of the cross. There are no green pastures, no still waters on the other side of the 22nd psalm. It is only after we have read, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, that we come to, The Lord is my shepherd. We must know by experience the value of the blood shedding and see the sword awakened against the shepherd before we shall be able to truly know the sweetness of the good shepherd's care. They don't write like that anymore. (laughs) Psalm 23 comes after Psalm 22, and that's for a reason, guys. It does not exist in isolation. It has a canonical context here that we have to consider. 
In Psalm 22, we have the prophetic foretelling 1,000 years before Jesus was even born that Jesus would come and die on a cross, that he would be surrounded by Gentiles, that he would be crucified between two transgressors, that people would cast lot for his clothes, that he would thirst so much that his tongue would cleave to the roof of his mouth and that he'd be stabbed in the side with a spear where blood and water would flow out. It is only because of the gruesome nature that Psalm 22 is that Psalm 23 is the blessing that it is. So that's our context. So let's move through this. We don't really have an outline other than the the six verses that we have. So let's go verse by verse through this, shall we? Verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. Let's just stop there. All throughout the Bible, we have words being used by human authors to try and grasp the character and nature of God. We have all of these different types of names and phrases and words. For example, in Genesis, it's clear that God is our creator. In Ecclesiastes, he's our wisdom. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband. And in Nahum, that book that nobody knows unless you look up the table of contents, he's our avenger. God is called the rock. He's called the deliverer. He's called the shield. He's called the consuming fire. He's called the alpha and the omega. He's called the cornerstone. On and on and on. We have all of these different types of names to try and capture a different facet of God's character. And the key for us as Christians is to never raise or only identify God as one particular aspect. We never raise one aspect of God's character above another because he's all of those things equally. He's both the Nahum Avenger and he's the Hosea husband all at the same time. So back in verse 1 here, Psalm 23, we're given yet another description of our Lord as our shepherd. Now when David says the Lord is our shepherd, what is he effectively calling himself? A sheep. Ten points to to you up the front. (laughs) Psalm 23 is a sheep's eye view of a shepherd. And as a former shepherd himself, David knows that sheep aren't all that bright. I mean, I grew up in Gunnada, out west, about four and a half hours northwest from here, and uh, I've worked around sheep a little bit in my life, and I've got to say, sheep are not intelligent animals. Uh, I, I don't know if any of you here have worked with sheep, but um, my parents have a, a really cute little English cocker spaniel, and, and she's, she's not known to be too intelligent, but she is like an Einstein next to a sheep. But aside from their lack of intelligence, sheep are pretty helpless animals as well. I mean, have you ever heard of a wild sheep plague in Australia? No, I haven't. Why? Because sheep wouldn't make it too well on their own in the wild. I mean, birds can fly away, kangaroos can kick and claw, even mosquitoes can wipe out an entire species with disease. You've got lions and tigers and bears, oh my. But sheep, what have they got going for them? An awkward hairdo and when they run they look really embarrassing. That's about it. They don't have sharp claws. They don't have sharp teeth. They, they have no way of defending themselves. Sometimes they do this awkward little headbutt, but that's about it. Even a whole flock of sheep together is just a delicious buffet of mutton and lamb. That's why sheep herding is one of the oldest known professions of humanity, right back to Abel in Genesis chapter 4, because sheep have always needed a shepherd. It's interesting, isn't it, that God in his goodness has given mankind the most intelligent of all his creation, the responsibility of looking after perhaps the most 
unintelligent of all this creation sheep. And that's why sheep can stand off against lions and bears, not because of who the sheep is, but because of who their shepherd is. I mean, David, in, the, in 1 and 2 Samuel, he was fighting off bears all the time. He was a shepherd boy. Notice as well here that the Lord is my shepherd. Now, when you prepare a talk, um, as Terry will tell you, you always you get your text and you diagram it and you circle grammar and you circle structure and you circle metaphors and all of this, these different things that, you, that jump out off the page for you. Um, and as I was going through these six verses of Psalm 23, I noticed that there is no collective pronouns. There is no we or us or they, but only my, me, I, he, and you. So David is not making a statement here about God's position to all people. David's not even making a statement here about God's position to all of Israel. David's making a very personal statement about himself and God. This is David's reflection on his relationship with God as his shepherd. Therefore, we can conclude that if the Lord is not, like, is not your shepherd like he was for David, then this psalm has no application to your life whatsoever. You see, it's an intentional thing to become a sheep of God. Jesus said, John 10, 25 to 28, I told you and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So you see, becoming a part of God's flock is a deliberate choice you have to make through repentance and faith in Jesus, the good shepherd. We must walk through the narrow gate Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. So we've got to get squared away from the get-go that this psalm here today has no bearing on a non-believer's life. God is not obligated to fulfill the promises of Psalm 23 for a non-believer, which is why it is honestly tragic that this psalm is read out so often at the funerals of people who never knew God as their shepherd. Psalm 23 is a psalm for the living with the Lord as the shepherd. Second half there of verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Some translations uh, there might read, I, I lack nothing. I mean, what does this mean? Because there's plenty of things I lack in my life. There's plenty of things our brothers and sisters around the world are lacking, even the base necessities of food and water. Even David himself lacked things. I mean, read the Psalms. He's groaning every second Psalm. So what does he mean by this statement? Well, because of the bloodshedding of Psalm 22, we now read in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And the first consequence of that is that I shall not want. What's the subject of the first verse here? It's the Lord. Therefore, I think what David is saying is that as sheep of, as the sheep of God, he doesn't lack anything. The Lord, in his role as shepherd, thinks is good for him. This ultimately means that no matter what comes by in your life, if you have the Lord as your shepherd, you ultimately will never lack anything because he is everything. Or to put it another way, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want another shepherd. Paul says in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. There's a condition there. This isn't a free-for-all, 
getting whatever you want. There, there's, this is about what God's provision is for you in your life. But while the shepherd is ultimately all we need in a spiritual sense, that's not all we get. Look here at the next few verses, verses 2 and 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. In verse 2 and in verse 3 that we're about to look at, we see both the physical and the spiritual provision of the shepherd. And again, notice the pronouns here. He makes, he leads, he restores, he leads again, and his name's sake. God's doing all of the work here. We're just the sheep, remember, depending on our shepherd for survival. When you work with sheep on a farm, you know, you don't, just, you don't just go get your sheep and put them in the middle of a paddock and say, see you later, I'll come back when you're fat and woolly. No, you have to constantly check up on them. You have to rotate them from paddock to paddock. Otherwise, they'll eat gra- the grass right down to the nub, and then when they're down there, they'll pull up the roots and actually cause erosion over time underneath their very own feet. Uh, you have to constantly check the clarity of their water. Otherwise, they'll, they'll drink whatever liquid they see, even if it's poisoned with their own manure. You have to constantly check your boundary fences, otherwise sheep will wander out and predators will just keep on wandering in. And you even have to check to make sure that a sheep hasn't fallen over. Seriously. A sheep that falls over on its back, it's called a cast sheep. If it gets too woolly or too heavy and lopsided, or if it trips over and hurts its leg, it can fall over and fall on its back, kind of like a cockroach, just kicking its legs, and it can't get itself back up. And this can have a very tragic end for the poor old sheep. A cast sheep, when it's on its back with its legs in the air, thrashing about, can actually die because they have this cavity in their belly called the rumen, and, this, and the rumen expands with gas, cutting off circulation over time to their feet, and the, the sheep will eventually die. So a sheep can die from falling over. And check this out. Matthew actually talks about this in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9 verse 36 and having seen the multitudes he that is Jesus was moved with compassion for them for they were distressed and cast as sheep not having a shepherd that's how inherently helpless sheep are they're completely dependent on their shepherd for survival guys this is not a flattering picture of humanity as we consider ourselves compared to God our shepherd But unless we have the humility like David here in Psalm 23 to recognize that we are just sheep before our Lord, then we don't understand the reality of sin. Because you know what sin does? Sin takes a sheep and makes it think it's a lion. A warrior sheep just, you know, going through the bush on its own. It's almost laughable. We must never be so arrogant so self-assured and misguided to think that we can survive on our own without a shepherd. That's why we have the pronouns, he, 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 he. Because we can't do this on our own. This is all about the shepherd's provision for his sheep. And that's why we have this whole shepherd metaphor here, used all the way throughout scripture, from Genesis right to the end in Revelation. But Jesus will still be our shepherd in heaven, by the way. We just looked at that in Bible study. Now, there's a man named Philip Keller. He was a missionary uh, child born in Kenya. And during his life in Africa, he spent about eight years as a shepherd boy. Some of you might have heard his book 
called A Shepherd's View of Psalm 23. I remember Terry saying that he'd read it as he went out on his Maldive surf trip. And um, it's a very insightful read for those of us who haven't herded sheep before. Uh, And Keller says it's almost impossible for sheep to lie down unless they meet four requirements. First of all, fear. Sheep are timid animals and they won't lie down unless they feel completely safe. I remember being out at a farm behind Tamworth Airport there and it was, it was late at night and I was driving down with the spotlight and I flicked it across this paddock and in the middle of this paddock were all these sheep with these little lambs huddled, standing up, huddled in the middle. You could see them almost quivering from 50 metres away. And as I swung the spotlight around the paddock, you could see eyes, 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 all these foxes moving in for the kill. Sheep will not lie down while they're frightened. Secondly, friction. Keller calls this the butting order. Has anyone uh, seen a sheep when it's angry before? Like I said, uh, they, just, they just look all stiff-legged and silly trying to headbutt the other sheep in their way. Sheep will not lie down while there's friction in the flock. Thirdly, flies. Sheep, if tormented by flies and parasites, will not rest. And that, that's why farmers spend so much money on, on repellents and all of, a lot of their time on uh, repellents as well. And fourthly and finally, food. Sheep will not rest while they are hungry. So these four conditions must be met before a sheep will lie down. Now, again, read verse 2. He makes me lie down. How can he make me lie down? Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want anything, because his provision meets all four of those conditions. So firstly, when it comes to fear, our natural instinct is to run and hide, much like Adam and Eve in the garden, but now there is no need to because 2 Timothy 1.7, God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. Secondly, when it comes to friction in the schoolyard, in the office, even in churches where there's that, that you that just likes to headbutt people all the time, Christ calls us to be content. Philippians 4.11, not that I am speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. Thirdly, when it comes to flies and parasites in our spiritual life, we can recognize the truth of Romans 8.22 that says, The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. But, next verse, we we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. And fourthly and finally, when it comes to food, Christ assures us, John 6.51, that he is the living bread come down from heaven. And anyone who takes hold of this bread and eats, the text says, will live forever. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the kingdom of God is theirs. By the way, here, this picture of the green grass and the still waters, it's in complete contrast to the desert arid regions surrounding Bethlehem where David tended his sheep. So David cannot be saying here that the Christian life is one of unending green pastures and still waters. Indeed, we're going to see in a few verses' time that that's clearly not the case. So we've got to look at this text and recognise that these places of plenty, green grass and water, they're places that our Lord takes us to time to time in our life, but they're places of rest in an otherwise restless world. Verse 3, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What's the purpose and the provision of the rest we have there in verse 2? It's to restore your soul. 
The provision of verse 2 is a means to verse 3. But notice the parallel there between our physical needs and our spiritual needs there in verse 2 and 3. Two lines for each. It doesn't, doesn't this just sound like what uh, is said in, in Matthew again, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who, are lab- all who labor and are heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and I will find rest for your soul. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. The Lord not only gives us provision and restoration and everything else that we need for life's journey, he then leads us through it in righteousness. Apart from him, guys, we have no hope of living rightly. Remember the old Sunday school verse, we all like sheep have gone astray, each one of us according to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him Jesus, the good shepherd, the iniquity of us all. If Christ isn't our shepherd, we're just like sheep wandering astray, making our own pilgrimage through the scrub in whatever capacity we can. But unless Jesus is our shepherd, it doesn't matter what path you make for yourself, how successful, how wealthy, how popular, how impressive you may look. It will never be the right path. And ultimately that path that you're on will lead to destruction. That's exactly the the metaphor that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount where he says the path is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. Ever noticed some of the songs we sing here at church? I don't know if you've noticed, but they're very sheepish kind of songs. I had a sheepish song at my own wedding not long ago. You recognise these words, I don't doubt O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Why do we sing words like that? It's because we're sheep. We're prone to wander just like sheep. But let me ask you a question. Do you think it's possible if you're... If you're in the fold of God's sheep, do you think it's possible for you to wander off so far that he's not going to track you down? Some people, Christians, believe that once you become a part of God's sheep, it is possible to wander off so far that you can actually lose your salvation. Now, hear it this morning if you haven't heard it before. Guys, it is absolutely unthinkable to believe that God would ever lose one of his sheep. That is so clear in the scriptures. God, Christ himself, puts his very own reputation on the line. If you are a genuine, justified, blood-washed, born-again, spirit-filled, regenerate child of God, it is unthinkable to think that you can actually lose that. Listen to this. Jesus puts his own reputation on the line. John 10, 28. This isn't me. This is Jesus. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It doesn't get any clearer than that. And listen to this. Luke 15, 4-7. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Yes, we have dark days. Yes, we have days of doubt where we take a step back even. 
But if you are a child of God, even when you try and run away from him, you won't be able to because he'll catch you. Now this raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? But what about this person? What about that person? I've got people in my own life. My youth group leader is one of these people. What about that, my old youth group leader? What about that person who we thought was a Christian but they've walked away? Well, let's again see what what the Bible says. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Simply put, I believe that people who walk away and so far as we can tell never come back were simply never born again to begin with. Now, do you know what a shepherd does to sheep that keep on running off? They discipline them. Philip Keller explains how a shepherd would take a wayward sheep, and I've heard Terry speak on this before in church here, so you might have heard this analogy. Uh, They take a wayward sheep and they get their forelegs and with their staff they might crack the forelegs of the sheep or snap them depending on the size of the sheep in their own hands. Um, Then they'll splint them. And then they'll put that sheep on their, shoulder, on their shoulders to carry it with them for a while to build the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. And he recollects, Phil Keller in his book, he recollects that those sheep who experienced the shepherd's discipline are the ones that would often walk closest with the shepherd for the rest of their lives. Let me ask, have you experienced God's discipline in your life like that? Where you've been disciplined by him and as a result you get so much closer with him. Another thing that we must realise is that the paths of righteousness that the Lord leads us down aren't always the same paths that we would want to take ourselves. But here's the question. In that moment, when you're facing a difficult path, will you listen to the voice of your shepherd or will you follow the crowd and go your own way that you think is right? Despite how difficult the task may look, despite how nervous you may feel, will you trust in your shepherd that the road ahead of you is one that he wants you to go down? John Bunyan captures this picture so well in his epic work, The Pilgrim's Progress. Standing before hill difficulty, Christian is faced with the hard decision of how to continue on his journey. Does he go up and over this huge mountain that's going to be very hard to trek, or does he go around the base that seems so much easier? Well, his two companions, formalist and hypocrisy, take the easier paths around the mountain, but that ultimately leads to their destruction. Christian, in contrast, listens to the word of his shepherd and he goes up and over hill difficulty. Listen to this. The hill, though high, I want to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceived the way to life lies here, Come pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better though difficult the right way to go than wrong though easy where the end is woe. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Next line. This is truly spectacular. We're, we're pretty much halfway through this um, now this morning. And, you know, as we've been trekking through, it seems pretty good, right? We're sheep. 
where we've got the shepherd looking after us. We've got some green pastures. We've got some still waters. Uh, we've got these paths of righteousness that we've been led on. I mean, who doesn't do that unless they're totally into you, right? Who doesn't give us that? But then you read this, for his name's sake. And it kind of just stops your self-righteousness right there, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, guys, it's granted that the shepherd is going to provide for his sheep. That's the shepherd's function. But look at the ultimate purpose of it all. For his name's sake. Look, if you drive to Gunnada or, or out west from here anywhere and you go to a, a farm where there's sheep, I guarantee you, you will not see the shepherd serving the sheep. The sheep are there in that field to serve the ultimate purpose of the shepherd. Does the shepherd look after them? Absolutely, that's his function. But ultimately, the sheep serve the purpose of the shepherd. Guys, this is all for his name's sake. Let's not puff ourselves up with thinking about how important we are compared to God. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You'll notice straight away in this psalm that we've turned a corner. Look at how the pronouns again have changed from he to you. David is no longer talking about God, he's talking to God. Things just got a whole lot more personal. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but I bet you've also had a pronoun shift in your life as well. You know, when when you talk about God in the good days, when things are going well, it's always about how God, he has blessed me, he has done this, the Lord is so good to me. But when you come to those points in your life where the checks start to bounce, when the health starts to deteriorate, all of a sudden you have a shift in your way of thinking and and it becomes about God and me. Lord, you are the sovereign one. Help me through this trial. Lord, I need your strength. You move in. You get close, just like what David's done here. There is a pronoun shift in your life. The green pastures, guys, they're gone. The still waters, they're gone. Up and over hill difficulty, we've gone down through these paths of righteousness. We're walking with our shepherd and we've ended up here down in the valley of the shadow of death. And it's cold and it's dark and it's dreary, it's miserable and it's scary. But instead of running and hiding like what so many people would do when the going gets tough, David moves in, he gets close. Now, firstly, we need to understand uh, contextually that the valleys in David's day, when he was writing this psalm, they're the, the dangerous places. If, in Israel, they, the valleys were the places uh, of danger where you would um, have enemy, invading enemies come through and sneak up on cities. If you were to build a city in that day, you would build it on a hill so you could have the high ground advantage. But the valleys were the rocky, difficult places, and for the sake of shepherds who had to traverse these from time to time to rotate their sheep from pasture to pasture, as they went through, it is in the valleys that predators such as lions and tigers and bears would hide behind rocks, ready to pounce on unknowing little sheep. The valleys were difficult trialing times. So as we apply this spiritually to our lives, I have no doubt that there will be many people in this room who have traversed very dark valleys 
in your own lives. Maybe you've lost parents. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you've even experienced fractured relationships. Maybe you've been abused or you've suffered depression and you you just want to end it all because you feel like the valley is so dark and you just can't get out. Or maybe, maybe even you're like the person who's been walking with the Lord for years, but lately you feel like the shepherd and the sheep have all gone on and left you behind in the valley. David actually talks about this in the Psalms as well. He says, Psalm 69, Deliver me from the sinking mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord. Guys, when we're in the midst of the valley having these Psalm 69 uh, feelings, we need to do what David's just done and scream out to God. Answer me, O Lord. Cry out to your shepherd. We should never put on the face of a lion and try and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and get on with it. It's a sheep putting on the face of a lion. It's, It's silly. Cry out to God. Cry out to him, and as Jesus says in John ten twenty seven, that my sheep hear my voice and I know them. Jesus knows your cry. So rest assured that if you cry out to him, he will come to you. And when your shepherd comes to you, there's no need to fear the evil or the darkness anymore because it's a liberating, burden-lifting moment when you realize that Jesus is with you right there. I mean, you might even be on a boat one day, you know, crossing the sea, and if the wind and the waves are crashing all over you and you're freaking out, if you look to the helm and there's a Jesus, even if he's asleep, you don't need to fear. Guys, if the Lord is our shepherd, who can be against you? A lion, a bear, the shepherd boy David could kill those. What do you think the Ancient of Days can do for you? the King of kings and Lord of thoughts, who, who said, let there be light, and there was light. Behold, Satan will demand to have you that he might sift you like wheat, Luke says. But you have a Jesus interceding for you on your behalf, praying that your faith may be strengthened. You ever, ever read that passage before? It's incredible. Jesus is praying for you to the Father. There is nothing physical or spiritual that can ruin you if you are a sheep of God. Even if you die a heinous death, Paul will still look at you and say this, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That kills it. Again, listen to what Spurgeon says so beautifully. To walk indicates a steady advance of a soul which knows its road, knows its end resolves to follow the path, feels quite safe, and is therefore perfectly calm and composed. The dying saint is not in a flurry. He does not run as though he were alarmed, nor stand still as though he would go no further. He is, no, he is not confounded nor ashamed, and therefore keeps to his old pace. Observe that it is not walking 
in the valley, but through the valley. We go through the dark tunnel of death and emerge into the light of immortality. We do not die, but we sleep to wake in glory. Death is not the house, but the porch, not the goal, but the passage to it. Guys, has it ever occurred to you as well that perhaps the path through the valley of the shadow of death is actually on the path of righteousness? The only thing you're guaranteed at the day of your birth, unless the Lord should return, is that one day you will die. And you're not only going to walk through this valley of the shadow of death, you're going to die. There's, that's, that's a journey that you have to make on your own. I mean, you may be so fortunate as to die with your family and friends around you on your deathbed. You might even die at the exact same moment as somebody else. But you still die alone. So guys, we must know of the great shepherd who has already traversed this journey ahead of us because he is the only one who has been there and made it back. He's the only one, therefore, who knows the way. His name is Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us that since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The whole reason God went through the effort of coming to earth 2014 years ago, becoming a man named Jesus, living for 33 years on this earth, was, and dying on that cross the way he did, was so that he could destroy the power of death over mankind that is the byproduct of our sin. Jesus came to fix the mess we put ourselves in. And friends, there is no other world view or world religion that has a shepherd like this. That is why Christianity stands unique, because it's God's work, not your work, and that's why it works. Jesus Christ is the tried and tested answer for how we should live, for how we should die, and how we will one day rise again. And take warning, if Jesus is not your shepherd, David says, Psalm forty-nine, fourteen. he says this, death is your shepherd, guiding you down the path of destruction. We must have that great shepherd to lead us through the valley But see here, verse 4, he's not just there, he's armed. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that gets a sense of anticipation whenever I'm in the valleys of life, just to see what my shepherd's going to do. You guys watch the Bourne series? Most blokes probably have. Yep, loving it, shaking your heads. All right. Uh, I love it. The Bourne, Jason Bourne, if you haven't watched it before, he's just this walking weapon of a man. I mean, he knows kung fu, he knows jiu-jitsu, he knows karate, he knows tai chi, everything you can think of that, you know, you use your fists for, he knows it. Now, maybe this is just a guy thing, but if I was walking around in a really dodgy city at a 2 a.m. in the morning in a bad part of town, and I just happened to walk down this dodgy-looking alleyway with Jason Bourne next to me, and out jump 15 blokes with chains and bats... In that situation, how am I going to react? Well, rather than just run away, I think I'd kind of smile at them and give them the old wink, you know, and just uh, just let my buddy Jason Bourne look after them. I mean, you'd be thinking, bring it on. Finally, I get to see some real-life action that's not just on the TV screen. And the coolest part of this all, the coolest part of all of this is, 
is that I don't need to know judo or kung fu. I can take a step back and let Jason Bourne do his thing. 50 back alley blokes, please, Jason Bourne. He's got my back, right? There's only two people walking out of that alleyway, and it's the two people that walked in. The point is, as Christians, how much more can we anticipate the victory that we have through Christ no matter what bad things may come our way. There is no Christian judo move you need to know to get yourself out of that. We don't need to save ourselves. We have a Jesus who has already done that for us and he's locked and loaded with his staff and his rod. His graciousness and his justice, the two weapons the shepherd brings to comfort his sheep. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I spent about two days wrestling with this section. I just, I mean, when you read the Psalms, you get a sense of the beauty of what you think the author means, but it's possible just to destroy the beauty of it by cutting it up and trying to wrestle with what every single word means. And as I looked at this, I guess I've concluded, when you look at it, firstly, you see that there's a change in metaphor here, it appears to be at least from all this shepherding talk to now some sort of a host in, in a house with a meal. But some say that there isn't, some commentators say there isn't actually a change in metaphor here because the word for table in Hebrew doesn't necessarily refer to a piece of furniture, but it can refer to just something spread out like um, a tablelands. We say northwest tablelands and slopes. So it could mean something in that sense where the sheep are led to. Another question I had was. Where are we when we have this great feast? Well, according to verse 4, we're still in the valley. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because remember, the valley, that was the place where the enemies often dwelled. And look, from verse 5, halfway through to verse 6, we're still alive because he says, all the days of my life. It's only when you read there in verse 6 at the end that I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever that we're beyond that final chasm of death. So everything from verse 4 all the way through to verse 6 relates to you and me when we are in the valleys of life. So I believe what David is saying with that context, I believe that David is saying that the provision and grace that God gives us is so much, that gives us so much confidence in the valley, the place where we should be most fearful of all, We have so much confidence there that it's just as though we're sitting down enjoying a feast. Relaxing in the abundant provision the Lord has given him. I don't believe this is a literal feast with literal food in front of a particular group of people. Instead, it's a metaphor for the abundant provision and grace and blessing that God showers on his people. And notice here, David's cup isn't just full. It's overflowing. It's excess. No wonder he says back in verse 1, I lack nothing. God lavishes on his people, on his sheep, all they require and more. It's just as Peter said in the New Testament, 2 Peter 1, three, his divine power has granted to us all that pertains to life and godliness. All things from the green pastures, the still waters, the paths of righteousness, the rod, the staff, the table, the fragrant oils, and the cup, no good thing does God withhold from his people. So friends, the blessings of this psalm is not an elimination of your issues. It's not an elimination of problems. It's not an elimination of our enemies. The blessing of this psalm is that we have a shepherd. And contrary to what so many people think, Psalm 23 is not an idyllic portrait of life. It's a realistic one. 
with the Lord as our shepherd. Every time we take that bread as well here in church, all these years later, take that bread and drink that cup, it's as though we're at the table, I think, of Psalm 23 verse 5, drinking and eating in remembrance of our great shepherd, Jesus Christ, while all around us in this city are people who oftentimes despise us for our beliefs. Our final verse here this morning, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You'll notice that David is speaking here in a future tense. At the time of writing, David... um, I don't believe David wrote this when he was a shepherd boy in a green pasture underneath a tree watching his sheep. I think David actually wrote this towards the end of his life as he was looking back over the provision God had given him. So it's as if at the end of David's time, he was looking back, reflecting on the Lord as his shepherd. And as he was doing that, recounting the many blessings and provisions God had given him, he now says, full of confidence, the Lord will continue to bless him all the days of his life and thereafter where he shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What's that song that we sing that we all know by John Newton? It was grace that brought me safe thus far. And then what? Grace will lead me home. That summarizes this psalm right here. David's conclusion is that the Lord will continue to be with him in the future as he has always been with him in the past. Despite the many sinful failures on David's part, the Lord is unmoved in his covenantal love and faithfulness towards his people, towards his sheep. And as David looked to the future, he pondered the reality that one day he would be dwelling in the shepherd's very own homestead forever. No more campouts in the green pastures, no more campouts by the still waters, no more cold, dark nights in that valley, but in the very homestead of his shepherd forever. Friends, the day is coming where you and I will dwell in this house forever with the Lord. And in that place, Revelation will give you the details. There will be no more pain, no more tears, no more disappointments or frustrations. It will be a perfect place with communion with each other and God It will be a place where you can look back and reflect on your own life and say, surely goodness and mercy has followed me all the days of my life and now I'm dwelling in that house of the Lord. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. This place is not that place. But here's the good news. The same shepherd who John in chapter 14 of his gospel says has gone there to prepare a place for us in heaven, that same shepherd is the one who is right here today guiding us and walking with us through his spirit. He is the one who has brought you to church this morning, whether or not you realize that. The Christian life is really just a journey with Jesus to Jesus. And this psalm here, Psalm 23, is a psalm about the good shepherd who died in Psalm 22 so that we can live in Psalm 23 and one day eagerly await his return in Psalm 24.